Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com. From Texas Public Radio, this is Texas Matters, a weekly radio news magazine that looks at the issues, events, and people in the Lone Star State. Today on Texas Matters, we hear the migrant story from Haiti to the U.S. and trapped in Afghanistan, how Texans are trying to help allies escape the Taliban. This is Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. Haiti has been in crisis for decades, even centuries. Today, violent gangs control the country. That political and economic turmoil, combined with two major earthquakes, have pushed tens of thousands of Haitians into leaving their island. But who are these people, and what's their story? What was their life like, and what has been their life since leaving the island in 2010? Reported by Stephania Corpi, this is the story of Dachka. She takes us on her 10,000-mile journey from Haiti to the U.S., and she shares stories about life back home, her struggles of making her dreams come true in a new country. Oh, my name is Dashka. You want more? 25? English is Dashka's fourth language. Only a little more than 1% of the world population can speak more than three languages. She has been learning it since May when she arrived in the U.S., Originally from Haiti, Dashka was part of the 16,000 migrants that set up an improvised camp last year underneath the international bridge between Ciudad Acuña, Mexico and El Rio, Texas. Looking for a better life, she took the long and dangerous journey from Santiago, Chile, to the U.S.-Mexico border with her toddler, who is a Chilean citizen, and her partner. Like many migrants, she decided to leave after COVID-19 hit leaving many Haitians and Venezuelans in an extremely vulnerable economic position. Xenophobic sentiments were also on the rise. That's the reason why she crossed the infamous daring gap between Colombia and Panama. The trip was about six days, with my kid. When I was at the daring gap, I would pray, God, please, God, help me get out of here. It's also the reason she had to pay large fees to cross Central America. When we were about to cross the border with Mexico, we had to pay $250 each. Gangs were always asking for money along the way. She also had a hard time in southern Mexico, with no shelter, job, or solutions, and facing increasing violence from Mexican migration authorities. In September 2021, thousands of migrants reached the U.S.-Mexico border. They thought their months-long odyssey was over, but soon they realized they were not welcome in the U.S. When I first saw Dashka, she was waiting in the Rio Grande River. It was a tumultuous scene. Migrants crossing the river, back and forth between Mexico and the U.S., covering their faces because they didn't want to be photographed. Most of them were carrying food and water or their clothes to stay dry. Dashka was carrying a big black bag. Even in the midst of chaos, she turned back and smiled at me. I found her three days later. 
Many migrants decided to stay on the Mexican side of the border after rumors of deportation started to spread. We talked a lot. Her personality was very attractive, positive. After everything she had been through, she was always smiling. She's the type of person who would always see the glass half full. <laughs> but the trip was okay. I was able to visit many countries, to eat new food, Panama. Food in Panama was delicious. I asked her why she smiled at me when she was crossing back to Mexico. She told me that that river wasn't as hard or scary as the trip had been. But what she was extremely afraid of now was being sent back to Haiti. Migrants who are staying here will be taken to Haiti. Now everyone's scared. Police coming and going. I'm not scared of them. I'm scared of all the rumors of being deported. These weren't rumors. The Biden administration has expelled more than 26,000 children, women and men to Haiti under Title 42. Dashka and her family didn't risk it. They stayed in Ciudad Acuña, Mexico for almost two months. Mexican authorities established a camp in very poor conditions for those who decided to stay. Salón Fandango was an old dance hall with metal pipes on the ground, no roof or running showers. It was not ideal, but most of them didn't have a choice but to stay there. In the inundation, there was a lot of water. place was flooded. There was water everywhere. It started to pour rain at about midnight until 4 a.m. I went back to visit her in early November. That same week, Mexican migration authorities and international organizations appeared at the camp offering migrants to begin their asylum process. Haitians don't trust the media anymore, so my presence there was disturbing for a lot of the migrants. But I was able to have some exchanges with some of the women near Dashka's tent, like 27-year-old Darlie, who decided to sing impromptu gospels for me. Dashka was excited that she was finally going to set up a residence in Mexico. She wanted to rent a house and have some private space. I am very, very happy. My son will have a house. He won't have to keep moving around all covered in dirt. I don't like to see him like that. That cold November afternoon, when it was finally her turn to fill out the paperwork, I waited for hours. I watched children jumping rope or playing football. Some were even preparing for bed. When she was finally done, she came to me and told me she felt relieved. But she had to share a story with me something she hadn't dared to tell me, or anybody at the camp. My mom died of HIV. 
She was, first of all, my friend, my only friend. People started to threaten me. She wrote everything down in her asylum application and felt confident things were going to work. I wrote it all down, of course, so that they understand, because my country is very close-minded about HIV. Before leaving, I learned more about Dashka's life in Haiti. Both her parents had died. Her father used to sell paintings to tourists, and her mother was a teacher. She went to a French school and loved to learn about history. I was happy. I was in high school at a French school, Saint Trinité, and had music lessons. I was learning to play the violin. By the end of November, Mexican migration officers had dismantled the camp. A lot of the migrants decided to go to Torreón, an industrial city 400 miles south, where the UN's refugee agency promised housing and jobs. I'm excited because I will have my own place. I know it will be hard to get a job right away, but I'll figure it out. Dashka was happy at first. She found a cleaning job at a hotel, but the money she earned wasn't enough. I could tell she was struggling. She would often tell me she wanted to move somewhere where she could find the products she needed. I didn't like it. I want to move somewhere where there are more Haitians and more Haitian products. I lost track of her for a couple of weeks. She stopped answering my messages or my calls. At that time, thousands of migrants were stuck in Reynosa, on the border with McAllen, Texas. I worried she had been detained. But suddenly, in early May, my phone rang. She was finally in Ohio with her family. After spending three days in Reynosa, she was able to legally enter the U.S. on a tourist visa. Then, Dashka's cousin booked her and her family a flight from Texas to Ohio. In early June, I made my own way to Ohio to see her and asked her about her arriving in the U.S. and all the dreams she had told me about. Dreams of going back to school or taking care of the elderly people, which was her last job when she was living in Chile. She wants to study and become a nurse. I brought printed pictures of the day we met when she was crossing the river and snaps of the shelter outside her tent. Dashka cried while going through them with her cousin. It was probably the only time I saw her break down like that. I have those pictures and now look at me. I'm past that. Dashka says she doesn't hold any grudges against anybody. Migration agents were just doing their jobs. And she's very fond of every country she visited. She particularly wants to take her son to Chile, where he was born. Voy a tener la posibilidad de viajar. Voy a viajar. Ojalá. 
When I get the chance to travel, I will do it. I'm going to go to Cancun. What she loves in life, she says, is food. <laughs> I love food. I love trying food. The U.S. was not what she expected. I'm going to make a great life, one with shopping, great food, but I don't have the money to do that yet. Her cousin, who's lived in the U.S. for a year, had warned her just how harsh American life is. She had to see it to believe it. And now that she understands how hard it is going to be for her to settle into the country, she's losing sleep. Dashka is also trying to understand the U.S. bureaucracy and President Biden's mixed messages. During our last call in October, she told me that when journalists asked President Biden why the U.S.-Mexico border was still open, she wondered if that was why people were still being sent back to Haiti. Just imagine presidents speaking all nice and people believing it. And as always, she's hopeful everything will line up in her favor. I have faith I will have my papers one day. Um, do you like the United States, Daska? I don't know. This story was reported for Texas Public Radio by Stefania Corpi. To hear more about Dajka's story, subscribe to the podcast Line in the Land, La Linea, wherever you download your podcast. More than a year since the United States military left Afghanistan, people are still trying to get out. The U.S. Department of State says it's issued nearly 19,000 special immigrant visas to Afghans since the start of the Biden administration. But organizations say there are at least 160,000 more Afghans currently trying to get the correct paperwork approved to get out. The Texas Standard, Laura Rice, introduces us to some Texans who have dedicated much of the last year to helping them. Lark Escobar lives in San Antonio, but her life is consumed with what's happening 8,000 miles away. The, the pressure is inestimable. She founded a nonprofit working to get special immigrant visas, or SIVs, for about 3,000 Afghan people. So far, they've had little success. Yes, successfully 20 people have either um, made it to the United States or are on the way. They're in a transit point. Think about that. In a year, 20. Patricia Schwint is also from San Antonio. That's, that's ludicrous. She used to work with Escobar at the Defense Language Institute English Language Center at Lackland Air Force Base, described this way in a promo clip from Joint Base San Antonio. The DLI-ELC prepares U.S. and international military and civilian personnel to communicate in English and provide... And there I met many, many, many people from all over the world, military officers and some civilians, too. I taught the folks who were going to go back to their country and be teachers of English or interpreters, or whatever their job was going to be. 
Because of the U.S. military's 20-year presence in Afghanistan, she and Escobar taught a lot of Afghans. These are many of the people they're trying to evacuate, their friends. But for Schwint, there's one in particular. Uh, I'm going to call him Roger. <clears throat> of course, that's not his name. But he was in my class for six months. And I got to know him as an individual. And uh, honestly, we became very close. He called me mom. They were both paying attention to President Biden's plans to withdraw troops from Afghanistan. The official announcement came in April 2021. I've concluded that it's time to end America's longest war. It's time for American troops to come home. Schwint began working feverishly to get Roger out. I felt sick. He felt sick. We didn't know what was going to happen. And it was a terrifying, terrifying time. The Taliban takeover was rapid. By that August, a Sky News report showed swarms of people at the Kabul airport desperate to leave. It's just horrendous. Taliban hitting people. The road to safety is packed, thousands upon thousands. It's hard to put into words how desperate this is. But most of these people will not get through. Including many with good reason to leave, like Roger. There are several families in safe houses, and he's still there. A few months ago, one of them noticed the Taliban lurking around downstairs outside. That was a big scare and a terrifying one. I, I'm overusing that word, but I don't know another word that's stronger than terrifying. Even worse is when the people they're trying to help have an emergency, as Lark Escobar explains. My people in hiding can't just walk into the hospital. We don't want the Taliban to drag my people out of the hospital while they're in the middle of receiving medical treatment. So it requires a lot of coordination. It requires money. And I have to be paying attention for that all the time. A white car uh, tried to hit me two times. Rahela Shah is one of the people Escobar and Schwint have been able to evacuate. Shah was targeted long before the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan. I was the first girl who joined the National Military Academy of Afghanistan as a teacher, and it was a big risk for me. You are working with military? It's too bad. In Afghanistan, this is not the culture that a lady or a girl can work with the military. Shaw began her work on her special immigrant visa, or CIV, back in 2018. She finally made it to the U.S. in August, four and a half years after first starting the process, and she's among the lucky. My brother, his wife, and uh, four, five kids are in Afghanistan, and my sister, she's single, also in Afghanistan, and uh, we are really worried about them because they also work with the um, American University, and my sister works in uh, American Embassy. As of November 1st, the State Department reports about 48,000 Afghans had submitted all the required CIV paperwork. From there, it says typically less than half of applicants clear the first approval hurdle. Many, many more never even get that far. The law requires a lot of paperwork. And those documents aren't available. The State Department says it has surged resources to the program, increased staff by more than 22-fold, and tried to streamline wherever legally possible. But Schwint says it's not enough. Pardon me, I shouldn't say it, but if they wanted to, they could have the people in there immediately 
like like 87,000 new IRS agents. They could have 87,000 people in there working those applications. She says the U.S. owes these people more protection now. They should be lifting them out of there and vet them and go through those documentations later in a safe place. Now safe in the U.S., Rahela Shah says she's grateful, but she's also disappointed in the process. Her brother's special immigrant visa has already been denied twice. We will never give up, and we need to save ourselves. We need to save our family, because uh, it was not our sin to work with the U.S. or with the government of Afghanistan. I want people in Texas to know that the men that we are working with in Afghanistan are not a threat to our country. They love our country. That's why they helped us in the first place. That's what got them into this situation. So far, Patricia Schwint and Lark Escobar say at least three of the thousands of people they're trying to evacuate from Afghanistan have died. One was violently murdered. Two others died of starvation when food support couldn't get to them. A toddler and her aunt, who was giving up meals to try to keep the baby alive. Escobar says. They cannot just be left to die terrible deaths because they were here. They have social security cards and driver's licenses. They speak English. All of these things are crimes to the Taliban. They are crimes worthy of death. But there is some progress. Just in the past weeks, their count of people they've gotten out of Afghanistan rose to 21. In Austin, I'm Laura Rice. At Bernie's Cibolo Nature Center, there's a small walking bridge with a very common appearance, but its history is anything but common. Texas Public Radio's Jack Morgan takes us there. On Bernie's east side, beyond the city pool, tennis courts, and soccer fields, lies 160 acres of parkland. If you park in their lot, past the pavilion, and walk about 75 yards west, you come upon a wooden bridge. Hello, Brent. Hey, Jack. How you doing? Good, man. That wooden bridge has an oddly important-sounding name. Welcome to the International Bridge at the Cibolo Nature Center. That's Brent Evans, whose relationship with this bridge dates back to 1990, when its incredible backstory first came about. Where we are is at the Cibolo Nature Center in Bernie, Texas, that my wife and I founded now 34 years ago. That bridge doesn't look terribly remarkable. It's uh, basically a footbridge made of pine and two by eights and uh, four by fours and it stretches across a distance of about I'd say maybe 30 feet and about eight feet wide. It's the story of what happened here that gives its name meaning. This is 1990 and there were some Russian and Ukrainian businessmen who came to the Guadalupe River Ranch for a uh, couple weeks of learning how to be entrepreneurs, because these are the days of perestroika. The Guadalupe River Ranch is a guest ranch a few miles northeast of Bernie. At the time, the Soviet Union's Mikhail Gorbachev was opening up the relationship with the West, exchanging ideas, and at times, people, like these businessmen, looking for new markets. And I was invited to teach a class of them on uh, the American environmental movement. The environmental movement was still new back then, and these businessmen from the Eastern Bloc found the concept fascinating. So I did the presentation, 
And then afterwards, a fellow named uh, Sergei Dolgovin approached me and said that he was an engineer that worked on the containment wall at Chernobyl and had lost a number of good friends to radiation sickness. The 1986 Chernobyl nuclear disaster killed dozens from radiation poisoning and is considered one of the two worst nuclear plant accidents ever. Dolgovin was from Kiev, about 50 miles away. He didn't trust his government in terms of the numbers that he was given regarding his own body's radiation counts. And he was asking me if I could help him get tested while he was in America. Of all the things to be asked by a visiting Eastern Bloc guest, this was perhaps the most unexpected thing possible. That said, Brent had a superpower. I am a social worker and I do know how to use a telephone. And so I got on the line and started hunting around and found out there was a facility that nobody gets to visit that was at Lackland Air Force Base. So I called up Lackland, and they passed me around. So finally I gave him to a person, and he said, well, I'll get back to you. Turns out it wasn't them who got back to him. Next thing I know, there's an agent from the FBI calling me, saying, Mr. Evans, what is going on? The Cold War was beginning to thaw, but it was still pretty cold. He said that we don't want any baloney going on here, Evans. We don't want any bad press. We'll clear him to get tested, but don't mess up. (laughs) Okay, sir. Brent's wife, Carolyn, remembers the experience. At the time, Brent had a long black beard and long hair. And we drive up in the van with these guys, and they're like, who are you? We're met at the gate with armed guards and jeeps with fatigues and everything, and they had wide eyes as they checked out the Soviet citizens' IDs. The FBI had tipped off the base that foreign dignitaries were coming. Base brass were there to formally greet them. The FBI did his job, and so we walk in. I've got a full beard at the time. One guy walks up to me and mistakes me for a Russian and says, How do you do? Welcome to America. And I say, Yeah, thanks a lot. Where's the bathroom? All humor aside, they were there on serious business. Sergei was tested, and the results were the best-case scenario, no elevated amounts of radiation. I mean, he thought he was a dead man walking, and showed that he didn't have huge levels of radiation. And, of course, he just broke down in tears of joy and felt like he'd been given a gift of life again. It was it was profound. That sense of joy and brotherhood was felt by all, and so a commitment was made. And they promised to set up a week-long environmental camp for their children to come to the Guadalupe River Ranch. This was to be glasnost on a completely local level, playing out... And of all places, the hill country of Texas. We called it Yes Camp, Young Earth Savers. We had 14 or 15 kids come. You know, we picked them up at the San Antonio airport and took them out to the Guadalupe Ranch and had an extraordinary camp. We got about 15 American kids and combined the, the two. Putting on a summer camp for about 30 teenagers, half of them foreign, had its challenges, but it went well. Their parents were delighted with their children's experiences. They were all very grateful to us, and so they invited us to come and to uh, visit Ukraine and visit Russia. Brent and Carolyn made that trip and had an amazing time. Fast friendships were made, lives changed. But time rolls on. Over the decades, Brent and Carolyn have lost touch with most everyone they met in Russia and Ukraine, But back to the International Bridge, here's the reason that in 1990 it was given that name. The Cibolo had put aside two six-foot-tall red oaks to plant on Earth Day, and on that Earth Day, they were a metaphor for the possibilities of international friendship and peace. 
Brent and I now stood underneath them. And I was just marveling at the size of these trees now because they were just little shoots when we were planting them. My son was just a little boy. He was a little shoot too. But it was kind of an emotional thing because there's the American tree on one side, the Russian-Ukrainian tree on the other side. And when the trees are planted, we put ribbons on them and cheered and celebrated and hugged each other and looked forward to peace. Those two red oaks have thrived, surviving drought and flood, and are about 60 feet tall. With the Russian war against Ukraine, the Evans can't help but wonder the fate of those teens who came to Yes Camp. And that's the sorrow. I'm hopeful that these trees will have the same kind of longevity that uh, many of the trees have around here, where they can be witnesses to watching cultures change and conflicts come and go, and uh, people have wars and then make peace. And, and meanwhile, trees just sit there and take it all in. But it's beautiful that it started out with such friendship among the Russians and the Ukrainians and the Americans. And uh, so hopefully the day will happen when uh, we can meet again under different circumstances. I'm Jack Morgan at the Cibolo Nature Center in Bernie. That's it for this edition of Texas Matters. I'm David Martin Davies. Email us at texasmatters at tpr.org. Download and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your favorite podcast. And tune in again next week for another edition of Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com.